again Don't know where Don't know when But I know we'll meet again Some sunny day Hello there, film snobs. This is Film Snobs, the podcast that teaches you how to become a better and more informed film snob. I am co-founder and creator James Owen coming to you live on tape from my undisclosed location. Not joining us today is the other co-founder and contributor, Stephen Himes. He is busy uh, working on any one of his other projects, but I am very excited to have um, on the podcast the chair chair yep. of the uh, political science department at Drury University, Jeff Vandenberg. Dr. Vandenberg uh, has taught there uh, since 1998. Uh, he was my intro to international relations professor. Um, I believe that was his first class he taught there. And but you scarred me for life. That <laughs> <laughs> me too, actually, as it turns out. <laughs> um, and but he also his background is specifically. I believe you have worked on a lot of uh, research involving the Middle East, particularly the uh, Kingdom of Jordan. Is that oh. is that what they call it? Yep. Yeah. Great. Well, well, welcome to Film Snobs. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's yeah, it's great to have you here. This was kind of an evolved process getting you here because um, we originally had talked a little bit about having you come on to talk about President Zelensky in Ukraine. We ended up having a really good conversation with someone I had never met before on that earlier in the summer. Um, I had talked to you about the topic we're going to talk about today uh, and trying to do that sooner, but I um, I had a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Very inconvenient. We, yeah, three weeks ago today, I became a father for the second time, and um, I've just really been focused on that, uh, so it's been hard for me to nail down times that have worked for both of us, um, but the reason I want to have you on here is because I've been thinking a lot about um, when I took your class, the first, one of the first things you you did uh, uh, for us as, as college students, which you, we played us the film Dr. Strangelove. Yep. And in kind of thinking about film styles being this uh, podcast where we're trying to talk about the relevancy of film with kind of experts on those subjects is, you know, kind of in, in thinking about everything going on in the world right now and everything that's gone on in the world since 1998 and um, thinking about that movie. Um, at, and I, I guess to, to get started with it, I mean, is that like this is a movie that has a particular relevance to you? When did you first see that film? If you yeah. Want to that history. Yeah, sure. I, I, I first um, uh, saw the film when I was in just starting grad school way back in the some earlier period of time uh, sure. <laughs> in the early 1990s. Yeah. Um, and I was in a um, an inter international relations theory class with um Dr. Richard Harknett, shout out to Dr. Harknett. And he's, he, 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 he had the graduate students do this sort of special screening separate from class of, of a film I honestly I'd never heard of before, um, Dr. Strangelove. And um, he introduced it, I'm, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing because no way I could remember the exact words, but it was some version of, we're gonna watch this film and it, 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 it will capture essentially everything you need to know about international relations and international security. So, oh. there you go. Um, which wow. was, you know, he, of course, it, it was for effect, obviously. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I have to say, the um, the 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 reason I kept showing it year after year after year, once I became a teacher, is um, and why I love the film so much. Absolutely. Um, is not only because it's just clever and witty and hilarious at some in some moments, but the lessons it has to offer about honestly a whole range of things in international relations from nuclear de deterrence to preemption mm -hmm. to um security dilemmas all the like some of the big big ideas in international security are are covered really well in this you know satirical comedy right um, so it's just a great tool for engaging in those big issues um and, you know, I find it hilarious, too. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, yeah, I don't I, I think we were kind of talking off mic beforehand about how much to get into the movie, like talking about this, because I have to think that the 10 people listening to this podcast have seen <laughs> it. 
Uh, but this is a 1964 film. Uh, it was directed by Stanley Kubrick. Not a guy who went on to make a lot of other comedies. Right. Uh, <laughs> Full Metal Jacket isn't uh, hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I guess Arlie Ermey had a few funny lines in that movie. Um, but yeah, I don't think about Eyes Wide Shut or The Shining or even Barry Lydon as being particularly light. Right. Uh, but he did make, I mean, and this is like a really short movie too. That's like what always surprises me about it. It's about a nice clean 90 minutes which is which is a rarity in modern film like we feel like anything that's serious on it that has anything serious on its mind's got to be like three hours yeah or a mini series but this is like 90 minutes um and this is essentially about a crisis that emerges because of between the united states and the soviet union about a kind of a technology involved with the cold war uh that gets um it's like is it called the doomsday machine the doomsday, is that what it is? it is that's it exactly the doomsday yeah. machine the doomsday machine gets kind of triggered but no one knew it existed yeah. <laughs> that's right that's part so of everyone's kind of just not sure what to do now um and you know of course the, the point of that being that the only reason that you know such things work is because the other side is aware of them and right you know, if it exists then they wouldn't exactly. dare try to <laughs> right exactly yeah exactly that's yeah i mean one of the one of the uh, amazing lessons of the film is the sort of the getting to the dynamics of deterrence and what it what what deter what are the ingredients of deterrence and Mm -hmm. one of those is that the other side you're seeking to deter that is to say get them not to do the thing they might otherwise have done is you have to tell them what would happen <laughs> and, and one of the things that goes awry in this in dr strange love is that the soviets developed this doomsday machine which is an automatically triggered nuclear armageddon um, that right. destroys the whole world um automatically designed to be triggered if there's an attack on the soviet union um but that doesn't that's not much of a deterrence since they never told anyone right. um, there's a great line in the film where Dr. the character of Dr. Strangelove sort of berating the Soviet ambassador about why, you know, he says some line like, you know, the, 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 the effect of this is only, only works if you tell the world about it. Why didn't you tell the world about the, the doomsday machine? Right. And then, and then in, a, in a beautiful piece of Cold War satire, the, the Soviet ambassador says, well, the premier whose name was Kissoff, Premier Kissoff wanted to save it for the party conference because he, he loves to spring surprises. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. A little, yeah. little, little too late. A little too late. But a little uh, too late. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so you know, because I think you know, because you think about, I mean, when you think about when the film was made, which I mean was a very big deal to kind of satirize that because you literally had a lot of people that were just, I mean, it was pretty terrifying. Yes. I mean, I think about you know, I'm a, I'm a little younger than you, but you're not much older than me. But I remember. Uh, and, you know, when I was a kid, I had to get under the desk. We had drills uh, for, you know, what would happen if a nuclear bomb went off and somehow that little wooden desk I had at Marshall, Marshall Elementary was going to save me mm-hmm. from annihilation. <laughs> yeah. But we, I mean, but that, and I remember driving around Missouri and seeing silos yep. uh, where, you know, where, you know, in theory that if something had happened, they were going to get launched from there. Uh, we had probably like one of the more uh, relevant security. You know, we had Whiteman. We have Whiteman right. Air Force Base in Missouri, right. which was a which was a serious uh, uh, target uh, for the Soviets because of all the you know advanced um, uh, flights. Uh, you know, kind of um, yeah, they had, yeah, 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 yeah. That was an Air Force base that um, has that had nuclear armed aircraft. Yeah. yeah. And now it's where the stealth bombers are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like whenever you see stealth bombers flying around mid-Missouri, you're like, I think we're up to something. <laughs> but yeah, so it is, it was very much real for us. I mean, it was kind of towards the tail end of that, but in the sixties, that was no joke. I mean, we thought that the Cuban missile crisis was going to wipe us all off the face of the earth. It probably came pretty close to doing it, probably closer than any of us realized. And so, I mean, you have to think, I, I don't know that when you got introduced to this movie, if you went back and looked at how this movie was viewed at the time. Yeah. Have you done that? You have yeah, that? Both, yeah, I think it's interesting to know the origins of the, how Kubrick came to, to decide to film it um, and also how it was received. Because um, again, like the, the origin story of it reveals how serious and um, 
insightful it is and how he took it um, and made a satirical rendering of it. But it was um, the the backstory on it was that it was a, an, a Royal Air Force, an RAF um, uh, officer, a guy named Peter George, who wrote this book called Red Alert. Um, and it was basically a fictional version of what he was seeing as someone who was involved in nuclear strategy and deterrence, which was basically things could go really wrong um, with a surprising ease um, and that there was serious dangers in the way um, the strategy of nuclear deterrence was, was um, framed. And so he wrote this fictional account. And then that got in the hands of a guy named Thomas Schelling who was an economist and political scientist and um, one of the leading strategists and thinkers of, of nuclear deterrence. And he and then Schelling began to write essays and reviews and other things referencing Red Alert. Um, and then, and that's how Stanley Kubrick came to hear about it through like an essay that, that Schelling wrote. And then the three of them ended up collaborating on, on thinking about the, about the story. So it comes out of, it comes, it comes from people who, through fiction and other kinds of essays were you know really involved in these considerations um and then then they took a satirical or artistic way of framing but but that's where the lessons come yeah. and then in the, and then in, and you're right in in the so when this is released in 64 this is we're still we're right here we got two years after the cuban missile crisis we are right. in the heart of 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 fear and both at home red scare sort of um fears but also like serious concerns um over how close we came that we don't we don't even we even know more about how close we came to nuclear these nuclear weapons in in cuba over cuba i mean right. so yeah it, it it both shocked people and then also there was it there was still a, a moment there where it was kind of heretical to talk to to both make fun of of um, military and political leaders but also um, to question these kinds of security issues. Um, so it was, it created, it created quite a ripple, definitely. Right. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I mean, I talk about Kubrick, uh, you know, not being known being funny, but it absolutely could be seen as probably his more provocative film, uh, as far as like when it came out and how it was received, but it was popular. It was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with a certain, with a certain set. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was it wasn't it wasn't like a box office smash, but it certainly was like well received. And, you know, and, and obviously it became not only classic, but became something that is almost academic. Well, it is academic because right. people like you were teaching. It. Right, right, right. Right. Uh, yeah. But, you know, yeah. And since then, I mean, because I remember when I took it, uh, you know, we still had I mean, the, the Soviet Union had fallen in 91 um, there's a whole history that we can go into between 1964 and 1991 as to why that happened. But still then, there still felt like there were state actors who we knew their traditional motivation. We knew like they had a sense of we need to kind of be on the same par with other countries because we want to see the benefit of trade and we want to see the, the benefit of the global economy. Um, so there was a sense that we all kind of understood each other in that way. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, is that kind of how you looked at, I mean, like you think about the nineties and yeah. what emerged, like the new world that kind of emerged. I mean, right. you know, I guess I'm trying to think about like what it was, you know, it, whether this was completely analogous, that movie analogous at that time, as opposed to 64. Yeah. I, I think in a different way, maybe because the, the end of the cold war, signaled to some the possibility that that kind of um you know sort of walking right up to the edge of the use of nuclear weapons as a security strategy was no longer necessary mm -hmm. um, and that there was there were possibilities of sort of big power global cooperation um that didn't exist during the cold war so i think there was a there was more optimism and and less sort of toe-to-toe -to -toe, um uh flexing let's say uh for security yeah. strategy um but and but then the world evolved in a different way and and probably in, in which things like um uh internal conflicts ethnic conflicts sort of disintegration of the states that in that formed the soviet union that began to sort of dominate the security global security concerns and in that instance probably nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence became much less relevant it's mm -hmm. not a 
it's not a security strategy that do, does you any good in the face of a, of a civil conflict in another country. You're not going to use nuclear weapons to solve that or to deter action. Um, so I think there was a moment, in, and then and that also kind of propelled movement towards de-escalating the nuclear rivalry. So arms right. reduction, arms reduction treaties, for example, or arms limitation treaties began to take off a little bit. Um, so so there was that moment. And then, but then we circle back, and and then um, you know the rise of Putin in Russia, and, yeah. and the sort of his his sort of ambition to re return Russia to its global power status and all right. that, that implies, and the fact that he's even um, even after he invaded Ukraine in February and um, was was sort of warning the world, don't intervene here, um, because we reserve the right to use every means at our disposal to punish those who intervene. Um, he said his quote was something like the concept consequences will be such as you have never seen in, in your entire history. Um, and at the same time, he raised the nuclear alert level for, for Russia. Right. Um, so now I think uh, we're, we're in a cyclical sense, kind of back into a world in which nuclear deterrence is, is, has, you know, gained new significance. Right. Renew, renewed significance, I should say. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, because I think about, you know, what I learned as a political science major in the 90s, which I mean, granted, was a lot more focused on domestic issues, what I what I chose to focus on. Uh, then going to law school certainly was more about domestic issues, but it did seem like we were, you know, the United States was strengthening. Europe was kind of becoming it, it was kind of evolving and it's been evolving a lot. Russia was weak. China, I think, was was a lot stronger than people maybe gave it credit for. Yeah, just because it showed it was willing to to commit atrocities <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that maybe otherwise they weren't anticipating a, a global power to do. But then, you know, because for me, in, in my kind of layman view of it, you know, you look at well, for the United States, is the world changed with 9/11? I don't know if the world changed because of 9/11 because I think the rest of the world's been dealing with terrorism like that for ever yeah. we have not in this country and i feel like our response to it did a lot to kind of change how the global uh, you know how the the global uh how go global conflict worked yeah um and and i guess you know because we because we were we were not just we were not teetering on war with other countries we were preemptively yeah going into other countries because we saw them as a threat Right. I mean, when you think about the deterrence and you think about weapons of mass destruction and you think about those things that we were told uh, back in the early 2000s, I mean, how did that shape or shift like what Strange Love tells us about international relations? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, so um, the, the rise of terrorism as a kind of global menace and, and the primary threat um, also made nuclear deterrence less relevant because mm -hmm. there's, not, there's no there's no deterrent effect that your possession of nuclear weapons has against terrorism and fighting terrorism. Um, you, for lots of reasons, one is that those who are committing to terrorism are also doing suicide terrorism, and threatening them with death is no threat at all. It doesn't have any deterrent effect. Right. And also the fact that terrorism operates in a very diffuse way and lots cells in lots of countries. So you're not going to nuke Germany because there's a terrorist cell in, in Hamburg or whatever. So they're no, they're of right. no use. The, the, yeah. nuclear, the only thing you have to concern yourself with is making sure that those, those, uh, those bad actors don't get the nuclear weapons themselves. But yeah. so in that sense, it kind of, again, it continued the trajectory of the, of the decreasing relevance of nuclear weapons or nuclear deterrence. On the other hand, one of the things that Strangelove shows really vividly is the idea of preemption. And that applies both to sort of nuclear deterrence and also counterterrorism, because the basic idea of preemption is if you are concerned that you are about to be hit in some ways, either with nuclear weapons or with a terrorist attack, then these the strategic move is to strike first because you can't afford to wait and it puts pressure towards preemption um but that's a really dangerous preemption is a very dangerous and controversial notion because on the one hand obviously you want people to to act if there is an imminent and credible and real threat to prevent that 
But, mm-hmm. but judging what's immediate and credible and real and imminent is a very difficult thing. And that's clearly the case in the fight against terrorism. Uh-huh. And, and, one that, and the other thing about that, which I think you're getting to, is one that can be abused the, uh, politically. Right. Um, and and either through bad intelligence or escalating up or amplifying the imminence of the threat in order to justify action, preemptive action. So I think that that you you hit on the key term there is and where the through line from that comes to today is this idea uh, the pressures for preemption and the dangers of preemption. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, because I, I that that all like kind of still resonates quite a bit in my head. And I think it is because I'm at the age I'm at because I was in my early 20s when 9-11 happened. And, you know, thinking that we, in my words, not yours, not Drury University's words, we handled that incorrectly. <laughs> and I know that's not a controversial thing to say at the t- at now, but I think then it seemed odd to me. And I actually wrote about this on filmsnobs.com because we would try to talk about political stuff um, on there that we treated terrorism like it was a war and not like it was a law enforcement problem. Yeah. Um, Because it seemed like when you're dealing with war, you're dealing with, you know, you're you're dealing with kind of traditional actors like countries, like leaders, like people who are rational. And I think, you know, going back and watching Strange Love again more recently, I guess what Kubrick is making fun of is the idea that you can't assume there's rational actors in yeah. any situation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. That's, that is another, there's, I mean, the list of th- uh, sort of big ideas he gets to it are so many, uh, but that, that question of rationality is a big one. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's actually t- in two ways. One is obviously you get uh, the dangers of having too much decision-making power in the hands of someone who is clearly irrational, like a right. character like the character of Jack D. Ripper in, uh, in uh, Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. His, his naming of characters is so over the top and hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, and, but so there's that. So he's clearly irrational and he pulls the world into total self-destruction through his irrationality. But the, the kind of genius of it also is that it's, it's showing how rational actors making rational calculations can lead also to seriously problematic and dangerous decisions um, because of the context of the strategy of like deterrence or preemption. Right. Um, I mean, you, you know, if you're talking about preemption against global terrorism, it, it is, it is a rational response to strike first. If you, if you think there's a, some potential for being hit yourself, but right. that it's a rational response. Um, but it's a really difficult one. And what it does push, push leaders towards, even if we assume good intentions and rationality is, erring on the side of striking first right? Um, because even if there's a small sliver of percentage of a chance of, of an attack coming, then better, better the rash, the, the calculation goes to strike first and be wrong than to wait and, and suffer the hit. So it, it, even that's, it's the context, the structure of that Eve strategy and, and that can push rationality towards really counterproductive. And I agree with you sort of really bad policy decisions. Right. Yeah. And now, you know, after we've kind of gone through that cycle of and I, and I feel like there was a sense you hear people talk about the war on terrorism and you hear them talk about like some of these conflicts we've gotten ourselves into. There's almost like a wistfulness of well, like when we had the Soviets, it was so much easier to know who the bad guys were. We knew kind of where they were coming from. We knew what they were thinking. And now we don't know that anymore. And now we're back to that again, <laughs> that we know that not the Soviets, but, you know, with with Putin in Russia yeah. and in his idea that uh, that, you know, that Europe should look more like Russia than Europe should look more like, uh, you know, more of a Western democracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, you know, my thought is like, well, OK, with with Putin. Because he seems like, I mean, and I guess I would like to ask you this question. I mean, you know, is is Putin different than like the Khrushchevs and the like the 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 other like the Stalins and the world leaders of the Soviet Union? I mean, does he have different motivations? Is is he like unique in any way to any of them in your perspective? That's a good point or a good question. I mean, um, yes and no, maybe. The difference is there's really no ideology. 
there's no sort of ideological frame behind Putin's approach to world affairs, except to reinstate Russia as a global power. And, and that that really means is chipping away at and undermining as much as possible liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not, it's, it's, it's kind of out of a sort of raw authoritarianism rather than any developed ideological philosophy of the sort of communism. Yeah. Um, so to the degree that we assume that leaders during the Soviet Union were in some way motivated by ideology, ideology excuse me, um, maybe there's a difference, but the, but the essential ingredients are the same, which is seeing the world as a zero sum kind of competition for power. And definitely Putin sees it that way. Um, and that um, undermining one's opponents and ad, in any gain for me is a loss for them. Any gain for them is a loss for me. And um, seeking to reinstate Russia's prominence in global affairs, those things are quite similar, I think. Um, and his willingness to use, obviously, what Ukraine showed in Georgia before that, and Ukraine uh, as well earlier, is that he's willing to use military force in a way similar to the Soviet's you know, uh, use of force in Europe before, in Czechoslovakia or Hungary, for example, to, to get what he wants. So in that sense, there's, there's no difference whatsoever. I mean, Putin himself is 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 cons constantly wistful for the good old days of Soviet power. Yeah, he well, he's, a, he's a former KGB guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it, and I don't know the degree to which it's communist. I don't know if he's a communist idea, I, I, and it doesn't even matter. What right. he wa what he wants is the days in which the Soviet Union was a global superpower and needed to be taken seriously. And I mean, like, and it seems to me, and I mean, I know the oligarchs have been around forever in, in Russia, and maybe that was part of the motivation back then. But it did seem like, I mean, is it is it is it a safe assumption to say money plays more of an impact on Putin's calculations than it had in the past? His economic value, because he's like a rich guy, thanks to the power of the state. Right, right. I That's a good question. I think. I don't know if it's personal enrichment so much, maybe could be, but I think that the nature of his power depends on the, on those economic relations. I mean, he, he, it's, it's only because of Russia's natural gas uh, su uh, supplies that Putin is able to get away with this. That's it's right. only he's, his energy is his, is his one thing. And that's what catapulted him to, to power. It's what he used to sort of pull Russia out of the doldrums. Um, of the of the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's it's just energy policy, energy, and his use of those. So without that, and without the riches of of rewarding cronies and oligarchs and so on for, for their access to those those resources, um, he wouldn't be able to get away with any of this. Um, so in that sense, um, but again, I think so. It is there is surely an economic element of it. I just don't know that it's a the degree to which all which it's about his personal enrichment or wow. using using his control over enrichment as a way to sort of co-opt people into his system I yeah think it's, i think it's probably that last one i think he i think it's a two, it's a means to an end for him right okay right and i mean i kind of my on my day job with renew missouri with doing our renewable energy it's always interesting how many conflicts and how many issues we get into over oil gas um, it really is a, a national security issue when we talk about energy, because I mean, we got to have it. It's like food. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's, it's, it's like any other conflict you've seen over the course of human history that we fight over resources. And when a civilization is deprived of it, that civilization fails. That's a yep. simplification probably. Yep. Yep. And but, it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous source of leverage as well. Right. So I think, you know, because you mentioned this and you you kind of mentioned Putin's reference to nuclear power more subtly than I seem to have heard it. I mean, it seems like he has said, I'll do this. But then I keep thinking to myself, does he mean Ukraine? Does he mean like like someone who would be funding them? Because we've let's face it, we've funded Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and other than like just having some economic um uh, uh, oh, hold on a second. I, I got a I got a dog in my office because like my house is being renovated. We might keep this in the podcast. I don't know. Sometimes people like this, but you know, like you, widen out the cast of characters in this story. Yeah, I mean, like obviously we're we're a country that's just if we see gas prices go up, we're like, well, maybe we're not so worried about Ukraine. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah. 
but I mean, yeah, we're not really quite into the whole self, uh, the whole sacrifice thing that we maybe we used to be. But I mean, I guess, you know, I wonder, do you think that's, I mean, how, I mean, how, um, how credible of a threat yeah. is Putin as a nuclear power? Yeah, great. That's great. And that's actually one of the key, like credibility is actually um, a real key thing that, that uh, Strangelove gets to. And it's key for nuclear yeah. deterrence. Yeah. Because it doesn't do you any good to, I mean, deterrence works on the basis of threat. Don't do this yeah. or else. And then you have to threaten what the or, or else is. But the other side has to believe you have the, both the capability and the credibility, the will to do it. That is not an empty threat. Um, and so then that becomes the very difficult calculation of when it's a real threat and when it's just, um, a bluff essentially. Right. Um, and so, and, and Strangelove got to that brilliantly because that's actually the whole point of the doomsday machine. The, the doomsday machine is basically designed to be triggered automatically. That's in the, in the film, of course, there's no, yeah, that's right. not a real thing. Just, just to be clear for your viewers, <laughs> if you're not... <laughs> You don't have any secrets. Your, your, your listeners, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> in the film, in the film, in the film, in the, the doomsday machine is designed to be triggered automatically, and the reason it's designed to do that is because um, the in when humans are making those decisions about whether to launch nuclear weapons and and end life on the planet, there's there there can be a real concern about whether someone would actually carry it out. Yeah. Um, because it also means your own destruction. Uh, and that's 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 the kind of craziness, the illogic of nuclear deterrence is that you have to convince the other side you're willing to kill yourself. Right. If they do something. Yeah. Um, so and then in, in the film, again, the idea is, well, let's get something that tri this triggered automatically. So there's no human element in it at all. And therefore, the other side can't possibly think it won't go off. Um, of course, then we're back to where we started in the podcast, which is, yeah, the other <laughs> side has to know about it in order for it to right. work. Right. But but that but then but then but more recently then you get to the question of credibility like I think it's a I mean people really serious people in in U.S. security establishment are, are asking themselves this exact question which is is this an idle threat or how seriously do we need to consider to to think about this and yeah. what would be and and this is why you've seen the U.S. fund and give weaponry to Ukraine but kind of not an all in way and and part of that is. Part of that calculation is being careful not to cross some invisible un, unknown line by which it it pushes Putin into a corner in which he becomes more willing to take certain actions. Right. Uh, and that that's that's a highly ambiguous line. Um, <laughs> lots of lots of people think it's it, it, it's not a serious threat because the consequence would he really be willing to suffer the consequences of that action himself on his own mm -hmm. country? I don't, I don't know, but that's, that's, that's how the whole dynamic works. And you can see the kind of, the, the kind of illogic of this logical policy, which is you, essentially for Putin, to, that threat to be credible, the other side, meaning the United States and others have to believe he's willing to use nuclear weapons if some certain line is crossed by the US, which would automatically, absolutely, massively uh, result in a retaliation against Russia. So, so. Right. Yeah, but then the other the other side of that dynamic is, do you want to take a chance? And <laughs> so that that's that's where we are. That's how the, that's how this whole strategy of, of deterrence works. And it's 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 why it's such it's so scary in a way, but also so farcical. And why it's such was such rich material for for Kubrick, because it's 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 literally insane. I mean, the you know the acronym of the day was mutually assured destruction. Mad. Yeah. It, it was mad. It was madness. Yeah, it, was. it was madness. But the, but the fate of but the fate of the world hung on that madness. Yeah. Well, it is. It, you're right. It is absurd. I mean, and and I think it's and it's almost terrifying for us to think about. I, I read somewhere the other day that like a human being can't think about their own mortality for more than 15 seconds at a time before like shutting that part of your brain off. Uh, we can think about other people dying. We can't think about ourselves dying. <laughs> Uh, it's just a survival. Wait, that, that per, has that has a person ever seen a Woody Allen film? I don't know. <laughs> they should go watch some of them, shouldn't they? Uh, yeah, because those, I mean, those are those are sustained uh, worries about uh, mortality. Yeah, or go watch Bergman. Or exactly right, 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 right. Yeah, but yeah, no. I mean, they're like, oh, well, that's fiction. That's a movie. That's right, Woody yeah. Allen. Okay. But like, so I, if I were to think about like, well, okay, if like, let's say Putin blew up. Ukraine, heaven forbid. 
like, do we then, shh, I mean, do we then like launch nuclear weapons against the Russians? I don't know. I, I sit there and think about from a moral standpoint how I would feel about that. I guess. Yeah. I would say he has it coming. I don't know. <laughs> Right. But then what are the consequences? That's that's it. That's we're right in the heart of the of the strategic dilemmas, really. Yeah. Um, is is what you're willing because the the again, um, you have to be a threat does no good if you're not willing to carry it out. Um, I mean, I think part of that would be the United States has never clearly said what what the U.S.'s own red line is in Ukraine. Yeah. And what the consequence. So it hasn't issued a sort of deterrent. Of, right threat uh, at least a nuclear one um and because it in part of it is you, you have to really be careful about issuing those threats because you can find yourself backed into a corner of having to follow through on them in, in ways you don't want to i mean right. deterrence yeah it, it deterrence i mean here's an example of deterrence not working is in the lead up to the invasion of ukraine the united states and other european allies and so on said to russia do that we knew that he putin wanted to do it it was clear and the us said over and over again directly and through the media don't do it or else there's gonna be all these consequences for you, all these economic, diplomatic, global political consequences for you in which they laid it out in detail about the kinds of economic sanctions that will happen. And obviously it, it didn't deter Putin at all. So right. that that deterrent threat didn't work. Um, and that deterrence can fail if the other side doesn't believe you'll do it or if the other side thinks I can take that you know, here's what you're threatening isn't so I can, I can, I can live through that. I can, I can handle mm -hmm. that. And I think that's what Putin's calculation was on the, on the sanctions was, okay, it's going to, it's going to be painful. It's going to be bad for others. Not me personally, Putin, but right. <laughs> I'll be fine, but yeah. others will be bad, but I, but a, I, I think we can get through it. And two, back to something you mentioned earlier, I think Putin's calculation was you can start that threat and implement that threat and put the sanctions on, but will you be able to stick with it? I think I, I'm sure his calculation was that the, the rest of the world would not have the sustained political will to have their own economic suffering just to come to the rescue of Ukraine. And that's yeah. that's exactly where we are right now. It's Putin's thinking, I'm going to play a long game. It's painful economically for my country. It's risky for me politically, but I'll bet that I bet the other side will will balk. There's there no way there's no way they're going to like have high gas prices and in and, and cold winters. Until the and the people are going to say, "Let's it. We don't care about Ukraine anymore. We're out." Right. Um, yeah. You know. I and I guess that, yeah. That is that is that is interesting because I mean there there had there were like those threats and those risks and he just said, "Well, yeah, I can live with it." Um, and then you also mentioned like it's not going to be bad for him if we sent nuclear weapons. If we knew if we sent if we launched nuclear weapons against Russia. I mean, Putin's not going to get hit by that. <laughs> He's going to know they're coming and he'll be safe. I guess so, and then yeah. the person who caused all of this, he'll still be around. Yeah, I suppose that's I mean, quite true. And then we'd have we'd have a strange love situation at the end of the film where everyone has to go into their mine shafts for uh, for 99 years. Um and then everything and then they'll, they'll reemerge. But um, but I can see I can see Putin in the in his the mine shaft somewhere saying, all right, I'll just wait. I'll wait this out. But but then still plotting about how to regain global dominance while, while everyone's in their mine, their mine shafts. Yeah. Now, yeah, with with. Yeah, right. And with kind of I guess I'm going to kind of timestamp this a little bit. But there was news last week that Ukraine had, you know, taken back some ground from Russia. I mean, is this imminent that this is going to be successful? I mean, I, I know you read about this a lot, but do you still think that they're they're not out of the woods yet? Right, definitely not. No, I'm sure yeah. not. No, um, you know, the, the conflicts like this, violent conflicts, are are political calculations, and um, it's very unlikely in in either instance. I think now that there, Russia can have a full-on military victory to take Ukraine. And I think it's just as unlikely that Ukraine could have a full-on military victory to reclaim all of its territory. So the question is, who makes a political calculation of cutting their losses? Or you know, who, who, who decides this is what the situation is now is acceptable enough to stop? Um, and I can't, I can't imagine any short-term solution to that because now, now they're dug in, now their heels are dug in politically and militarily. Um, it's, it's, I mean, imagine Putin who prides himself on an image of competence and even ridiculous, like capacities, like, you know, 
scoring hat tricks in hockey games against his national team. And, and, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he, he craves to create this image of himself as, his, you know, incredibly competent and person, strong man. How, strong man. He's a strong man. So how is he, how can he possibly accept anything short of what he can frame as a, as a victory? Yeah. So, and then, and then on the other hand, if you're, if you're Ukraine, um, how, how do you accept anything less than Russian, um, you know, getting out of your country after, especially that was true before they invaded, but now imagine, you know, all the horrific things that Russia has done, um, uh, all the atrocities and war crimes. I mean, how do you, how do you say, well, okay, we're done fighting now. You can, we're going to stop, even though you have some part of our territory. Yeah. Cause so, there's, there's kind of like this weird tanky argument out there that like, oh, if Ukraine would just agree not to join NATO, this would all be fine. Right. No, I don't think Ukraine would ever agree to not do that now. <laughs> They, they probably wouldn't, but that actually, that was one of the things, uh, honestly, that was dangled with Putin before is mm -hmm. like, Ukraine even said, we, we would, we would agree to thinking about the possibility of sort of per permanently de deferring any access to NATO um, if, if it heads off an invasion, he, he had that option. So it, when, when he says, when Putin says, oh, it's all about Ukraine's possible, um, you know, and um, admission into NATO, that's not true. Um, because they, they said we could take that off the table if you don't. And so it was it that that's a Putin wasn't serious about that. It was an excuse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and, and in any event, you're exactly right. Why would Ukraine agree to anything now um, that um, oh. Russia demands? Yeah. That would put them at any risk of being exposed right. again. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, so, I, you know, and it kind of is interesting to me because, you know, because we were talking about how we we live with the with this threat of nuclear war in our lives. But your students now in their 20s, mm -hmm. uh, maybe younger, have never done that. Right. How do they respond to this movie now? Do they respond to it in a different way or yeah. is it is it? Is there a theme to it? I mean, how, how have you been able to gauge that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's an excellent point. Um, no, not in the same, not in the same way at all. It doesn't, it doesn't, the, it feels more like a funny movie rather than a, a serious movie to them with that's seriously reflecting conditions in which they, the world around them is um, definitely not. Um, and um, so it, so I need to, draw those lessons out in a little bit more direct oh. way perhaps um and you know these are these are big ideas that we're talking about in, in class and so i need sure. to I need more clearly like say here's what here's what this has to say about about this um because the, the the underlying fear that i think earlier generations would have viewed this with and gotten that gotten the point that underneath the the, the slapstick and the farce and so on is real fear underneath that that mm. part is the same or at least the kinds of the kinds of concerns that students today have about global security aren't aren't primarily you know mutual and nuclear annihilation that's not the main that's not the main thing that's worrying them in terms of global security what does war i mean do you you yeah. hear like something over and over again from them yeah. yeah sure yeah it's it's things like um uh, uh climate disaster is is number one on the list for sure as a security threat well, right um, about that. Right. No, no, no. I, I, yeah, no, they're exactly right about it. Yeah. A climate disaster, um, still lingering concerns, I think, about terrorism, although, you know, that th that's a little bit different than it was maybe 10 or so years ago when it was high on everyone's mind, but still right. terrorism is a security issue. Um, honestly, I, th I think what I'm seeing, this is a bit of a generalization, is a sense that, um, a lot of the sort of threats that are global in nature aren't necessarily, except for climate threats, aren't necessarily hitting home as mm. much. It's it's they. I think the 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 security threats are viewed maybe more as a humanitarian concern. Mm. So when, when when violent catastrophe affects other people around the country, it's more of a humanitarian problem as opposed to a, a direct security threat uh, yeah. to them, which is also. I, I see the point. Um, so yeah, yeah it, it's definitely, it's a different audience. And also, frankly, you know, um, there's some parts of strange love that don't age that great. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. But no, so, probably not. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and also like, you know, there's a lot of sexism in that film. Um, oh yeah. You know. But I think that it's making, like I think about George Scott's character being like sexist. I mean, yeah. it's not portrayed. Um, right. 
it's, you know, that's it's not portrayed as a positive thing. No, it's definitely satirical, but the, you have to get, you, everyone has to, viewers have to get that it's being satirical. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that, that's the case. And also the Cold War references, um, I think, are ones that I um, increasingly need to explain rather than there's automatic sort of resonance of them. All the Cold War jokes about Cold War hysteria, like the floridation uh, uh, with Jack the Ripper's sort of uh, fear of the Soviets in um, uh What's the phrase you use? Is his precious bodily, bodily yeah, are being are being are being uh, undermined by a communist threat through fluoridation, and so that whole red scare, that whole sort of anti-communist uh, plotting and fear, is history books for most of the contemporaries, yeah. rather than well, any re immediate resonance. Although you know, it's funny because when I watch that and I think about the Florida Floridization stuff, Florida Florida. I can't say it. Sorry, never mind. But the whole thing that that it kind of strikes into that John Birch Society mentality that actually does seem really relevant now because there are people who are literally spouting off the most insane conspiracy theories, and it is incredibly accessible to people. Yeah, that's a, that is a, that's a great point. Yeah, the the idea so the 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 conspiracies being communist in nature don't resonate, but the idea of conspiracy theories generally and right the kinds of um craziness that it can drive people to do uh, yeah what, they, what it can make them do yeah that that part for sure is because i watched strange love during the pandemic it was on turner classic movies and they were talking about that and i started thinking about um the conspiracy about the, the thing about masks and vaccines and everything else being um right. you know being very similar and just trying to like conjure up the most you know, conjure up fear to, you know, to a certain degree, control people. Right. That's a good point. That's really, yeah, the, the old, the sort of ch tracing chips in the, in the vaccines and so on. Uh, that, that, that is, a, that is a, quite a good analogy to uh, fluoridation and in, um, in the strange love. Yeah, good, we've totally. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that, James. Okay, good. Because John Birch that's, that's is gold. Like, yeah, John Birch is like, to me, is like more accessible than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. Like that mentality is is more accessible, not not the anti-communism, but just the idea that the world is dark and dangerous and things that appear benign are very much not so. Um, I don't know. Gosh, I could do this forever. I could talk to you about this movie <laughs> for so long uh, because it was because uh, truthfully, it was you showed it. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. And I've probably seen it a dozen times since. And it has become a favorite of mine and it becomes one I'm, I obsess about largely because I'm still into movies. And I think that nothing we've not matched satire in this new global world that we have quite similar to that. Yeah, I know that is too. I mean, same with me. I'm constantly like throwing, you know, it's become kind of my like catchphrase, like the lines from the movie. Um, so I'm always referencing, like, you know, when there's a bulletin board, I just call it the big board, like, uh, general, like general, general Turgidson did in the film. Yeah. So I'm always throwing phrases, but that, you actually raised an interesting point about satire. I'm teaching, I teach a kind of first year seminar, uh, on uh, political satire, uh, and, um, and, and talk about, I don't show strange love, although maybe I should actually, now that I think about it. Um, but, but the. It, we're in a, you know, there's lots of commentary about how we're sort of in a post-satirical world, like the what's what's yeah. left to satire when the world becomes as outrageous <laughs> and sort of self, sort of auto-satirical or self-satirical. Yeah. Where do yeah. you go? Where do you where would where where would someone like a filmmaker go, you know, today to try to, to try to um, put a satirical or humorous spin on making a serious point? Yeah, yeah. In our, I don't know. I'm going to screw up his name. Inorito, uh, who did Vice and did. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the personal history of David Copperfield and did, uh, oh, it's, I'm losing it now. He did another show and it's, um, well, In the Loop was where, In the Loop was the movie show he did in Britain. And that to me is probably as close to getting sat satirical about our current world as any anywhere. Now, be hard to show because it's very filthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's my problem with. I mean, the show that I love that gets the that that captures American politics the best is Veep. Um, yeah, that's that's his that's his stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 just incredible. Um, but one, the world has overtaken the <laughs> the absurdity <laughs> yeah. of Veep. It's outpaced it. Um, and two, yeah, I'd love to show it more. But um, you know, one of the one of the both 
amazing treats of that show and also the reason you can't show it in classes it's just epic swearing it is very filthy and i i would i'm almost embarrassed watching it by myself <laughs> yeah yeah well because somebody was telling me they used to show the movie election in their political science class they're like well i can't do that anymore <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. yeah for good reasons for good reasons yeah but it is certainly i mean there's certainly there there's that and there's a movie called four lions i don't know if you've ever seen it but it's about these guys who try to become suicide bombers no no i don't know that much. and it's a comedy oh it's okay and i'm telling you <laughs> it's hilarious topic it's real but it is really it is really funny yeah yeah you that's I mean, past- honestly that's the sometimes the best most incisive points can be made through humor and and even on the most like serious things yeah so i i guess if i were to leave leave this conversation i'd recommend to you and anyone else listening to this that you should go find four lines i'm not really quite sure where you can find it but i remember i saw it at the moxie down in springfield and it was playing there and i i saw i was the only person in the theater but it it really did it 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 got to the heart of it it was really potent so uh jeff annenberg you have been great. Thank you for wasting your afternoon with me. <laughs> <laughs> best, it's the best afternoon I've had in a long time. Thank you for the conversation. Well, that's good. I don't know if there's anything you want to pitch, but you, I don't know, like go to jury if you're listening. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Everyone is listening. Please enroll. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, I thank you for, thank you for having me. It's been a real fun uh, conversation I enjoy and I enjoy listening to your your podcasts and yeah. reading reading your 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 movie reviews and enjoying your work generally and uh thank you so much for the opportunity I appreciate that I would literally I, I can say this to you I would not be here where I am if it weren't for people like you so thank you for that and thank think, you think how much better off you'd be if it hadn't been for that <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the lesson is the is the big anchor that I put around your you, know, you never know where life is going to take you though right so um <laughs> I just want to thank everyone for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to all major podcast platforms, share on social media. And until next time, please take care of yourselves and each other. Take care.